Well, this morning we begin <clears throat> what is envisioned to be a multi-week series that I've entitled simply Passion. Uh, no, this is not talking about human personal interrelationships of passion, though it does affect them. And it's not merely some emotional response to God, though emotions are definitely vital for who we are as humans. What I want us to consider over the next few weeks is the big idea of what actions that you and I can do to grow our passion for the Lord. To take time to think about how we intentionally move, intentionally move beyond that amazing moment when we trusted Christ and we were saved into the life-changing process of becoming what God wants you and me to be. Now, I suspect many of us who've trusted Christ as Savior have, have gratefully accepted his forgiveness. We like that, and it's amazing. We've received the gift of eternal life. We know that when we die, there's a promise to be received. But so many of us, I'm afraid, have settled for defeat in the here and now. We've settled for less than God's highest standard in the here and now. And, and we find ourselves, I think, to be living miserable Christian experiences. You go, well, I'm okay. I got to tell you, I don't think God wants us just to be okay. He wants us to have a passion and a desire and, 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 a, and a push in our lives that says there's got to be more. I remember a few years ago, well, it's a long time ago. I was about to graduate with my uh, last degree from New Orleans, and I was living in Arkansas. And uh, my aunt, Melba, uh, went with us, uh, went with me. She wanted to go to my graduation. And she says, can I ride down to New Orleans with you? I said, it'll be great. And she's my, my, was my dad's older sister. And uh, she has uh, what we call the, the hunter hump. Uh, I hope I don't get it. But you know what I'm talking about, where you start walking like like that, and it was real prevalent in our family um, to have that. But she, we went, and, and she was about 20 years older than my dad, so she was quite a bit older already. And her husband had passed away already just a couple of years before, and she said, I want to go. So we went to graduation, and then we'd get you know, down to the French Quarter and do all the things. And we're out on the river walk uh, looking around, and we look around and go, where's Aunt Melba? She is gone. She wanted to see. She wanted to go. She wanted to do. I mean, she was working her way across there. She had a passion for life. She wanted to see whatever there was out there. She wanted more in life. I think that's something that is akin to what we as Christians need to have for the Lord Jesus. Years ago, Zig Ziglar said this, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And that may be the simple answer as to why far too many of us as Christ followers seem to really be going nowhere spiritually. We haven't set our sights high enough. We haven't said, God, I want your best for my life. We haven't grasped our new identity in Christ as an overcomer. We've settled for what we can do instead of what he can do in us. We've settled for mere Christianity, as one writer called it, instead of the deep abiding relationship with God. Now, over in Ephesians... Paul writes a letter to the church there, and he reminds them of God's work in their lives. I want you just to listen to this passage before we jump into the outline this morning. He, Paul said this, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, we would be reminded of the amazing work that as a follower of yours, you are done, are doing, and will do in our lives. And that, Father, we would commit ourselves anew to aim high, to have a high calling, to grasp the high calling you have for us, and to, Father, shoot for the very best in our lives because you have given us your very best in Jesus. Father, we want our lives to glorify you and honor you and bless you, especially as we think of a new year and a new opportunity we have in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's four reminders here I want you to see before we kind of give you an idea of how to put it to put it into practice. The first thing I want you to notice is right there in verse four is that it's this, is that God mercifully loves us. Let those words sink in just a moment. God mercifully loves me. He loves you. Think about the characteristics of God himself. Who is God? He's holy. He's forgiving. He's kind. He's just. How about this one? He loves. God is love. But where does that love arise? Where does it come from? I think for those of us who are parents, we can relate to that because we think about our children and and, and we love them in a way that is just almost hard to explain, isn't it? We we think about our kids' life. We got got three in our house. They outnumber us, but we got three in our house. But I got to tell you, they're all different. And I love every one of them in different ways. But I love them as a daddy loves his child. Those of you who are moms love your kid as a mom loves their kid. This is how God, somewhat and so much more, loves us. He loves us as his creation. He created you for a purpose. He created you for a reason. He created you to worship. He created you for fellowship. He created you to walk with him. And in our most perfect form, we're designed to have this loving, intimate relationship with the God of creation, with our dad. He loves us. We were never designed to be alone. We were never designed to be in conflict with God. You carry his image, though it's fallen, with you. And I love when the translation catches the idea here so well when it says, but God. Isn't that beautiful? Think about that for a moment. But God. We were born in sin, but God. We were headstrong, but God. We were stubborn, but God. We were born in need of a Savior, but God. When you stop to consider what God does here, we really ought to be blown away when you think about it. You're going, God loves me. Can, just, can you just quietly say that to yourself? God loves me. Do you believe that? Does that really grasp in your soul and get a hold of it? You think, oh, God doesn't care about me. Oh, yeah, he does. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I'm reminded of the work of God as Paul wrote to the church at Rome. He said, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were dead in sin. He loved us anyway. We were living in rebellion. He loved us anyway. We were a mess and he loved us anyway. And what God accomplished on our behalf, on your behalf and my behalf on the cross of Calvary was this. Because of his great love, he gives us the potential for forgiveness. And his death on the cross shows us the great love 
His love is so amazing, and yet so often we treat it so lightly, don't we? Oh, yeah, he loves me. Of course he loves me. Oh, he loves us. He made the first move to reconcile you. Had he not moved in his mercy, we would be in trouble. But he loves us. Second, he rescues us. He gracefully rescues us. Look at verse 5. The thought goes on. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us what? Alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Added to God's merciful love is this graceful rescue he has for you and for me. Even when we were dead in trespasses, which, by the way, is a fancy way of saying when we were living dead in sin. We were born in sin, we live in sin, and we die in sin unless something changes with God's intervention in our lives. Christ accomplished before we were ever thought of that what was necessary to rescue you and me from sin. You see, long before any one of us ever existed, Jesus came to what? Be born of a virgin? to live a perfect sinless life, to die on a cruel cross for our place, in our place, and then he was raised on the third day. And through that process, Jesus made a way. I want to clarify my thought there a little bit. He made the way possible for you and me to have forgiveness, to be rescued, to be restored to a relationship with him. See, he made the one way. You know, humanity is kind of funny. We're all a little different. But when you think about the world religions, and you look at the different ways that people have tried to figure out how to get back to God, that's kind of something endemic to us as people, as humans. We want to, we know there's something wrong. We know we need to do something. We need to get somewhere. Something. When you look at the world religions, almost every one of them, except for true Christian faith, says this, we need to do this. We need to accomplish this. We need to go here. We need to go sacrifice this. We need to go accomplish these there list of things. We need to do those things and do these things. And we need to, we need to, we need to. Have you noticed that? We could list all the world religions and almost all end up at the same thought. And we compose and impose on our lives a morality that says, here's what we want to do. There's thousands of ways we try to make ourselves presentable. But none of those work. Jesus makes it plain. Excuse me, Paul makes it plain how Jesus works, when his forgiveness works, how his rescue works, when he said it. Look at the scripture again. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. God works. Or as Paul would tell the church at Colossae, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is not we who save us. It is God who brings that grace to us to make it possible. And if you're here today and you know God's forgiveness because of God's grace, you're in the kingdom of God. You say, well, I don't feel like it. If you really trusted him, you are. That's where we need to step up and say, okay, he's saved me. He set me free. That means I need to move where? Upward, not downward. I need to go after that high calling he has for me. He has something more for us than just getting through the day, getting through the year, getting through the month, getting through our lives. And we should have high goals in our spiritual walk. That's another passage says, if the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. Go do it. So he mercifully loves us. He gracefully rescues us. He miraculously raises us. Now, I think this is where it really starts to dig into the thought that we sometimes miss is right here in verse 6. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We kind of want to rush on past that to the, the really cool stuff in verses 8 and 9, which we're not even going to cover today. But God mercifully loves us. He gracefully rescues us, but he also raises us. The thought here is this. God raised us up with Jesus and seats us with him in the heavenly places. Now let that thought sink in for a minute. Because this truth is utterly life-altering when we actually apply it to our lives. Before Christ, we were what? Dead in sin. Where were we going? Wrong way. We were headed in the wrong direction. We had no hope. God mercifully intervened in our lives with love, opens the door for a life headed in the right direction, his direction. He then makes us alive with Christ because of his grace. He transfers us to the kingdom, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But catch this. His forgiveness has broken you free from the old so you can live the new. You go, well, I'm just like everybody else. Let me tell you something. If you're a child of God here today, you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you are not like everyone else. You have been set free. You have been seated in the heavenlies with God himself. We don't get that. We don't understand that. And what that means is absolutely life-altering because Christ, in Christ, our existence has been changed. We are no longer sinners. We're now what? Saints who occasionally sin. We are no longer living a life that's meaningless. We have a life that has meaning. It's meaningful. No longer are we hopeless. We are now what? Hopeful. Far too many of us have answered God's call to salvation, but we haven't grasped the meaning of this truth right here. I am a child of the King. I am somebody, not because I'm somebody, but because his presence is within me. And the same thing is true for you. But that also carries this, a whole lot of responsibilities and a whole lot of privileges, doesn't it? There's a lot that comes with it to being part of the kingdom. As Paul said to the church at Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. You are completely changed. The old passes away. Behold, the new has come. In a very real sense, that means this. You are already, if you're a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You go, I thought I was an American. Well, you can be an American and be a kingdom citizen. But being an American doesn't make you a kingdom citizen. Being a kingdom citizen says this, I'm part of something greater, bigger, better, broader than just a nation. I'm part of God's work. We need to grasp that. Man, I tell you, I see the, the flag unfurled at a football game and I hear the national anthem played. I, I tear up just like the rest, okay? I love my country, but I love my kingdom more because the kingdom of God is the one that is my eternal home. That's the one that's gonna give me eternity and a life. In a very real sense, we are already citizens of heaven. That means we're living in the here and now. Think about it this way. You're, we're a resident alien in the world. You know what a resident alien is, don't you? It's somebody who immigrated to another country and it's not their country, but they haven't got citizenship yet, but now they're, they're living there. It's like we're living in a foreign land. Who's my king? King Jesus. Doesn't matter who the president is. I pray for him. What matters is who my king is. That's King Jesus. Because in Christ, we are new creations. The old passes away. We are set free. I think it's, it's a pretty good way to think of ourselves because as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and we deepen our understanding of God's way, we, we begin to reflect the values of our Father more than we reflect the values of our country and the world we live in. That's because we're strangers. We're aliens. In Christ, we've been seated in the heavenly places. Grasp the big idea as a result of knowing Christ and being known as his child, we can live above the fray of this world because this is not it for us. 
I think the saddest funerals I ever have to speak at are the ones where the person really didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And this was all they had was this world. But for those who know Jesus, what? We have an eternity out there that's greater. And I don't have to settle for the ways of the world. I can walk in the higher place. So God mercifully raises, uh, loves us. He, he gracefully rescues us. He miraculously raises us. But he also purposefully transforms us. Look at verse 7. So that, why does he do all this? So that in the coming ages, he, Christ, might show the immeasurable, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, with all the work God does in our lives, loving us, rescuing us, raising us, we might want to ask the question, why would he do that? Why us? And this is where the old proverbial rubber meets the road, if you will. God does all of this work, all of this loving, all this rescuing, all this raising up to his plane so we can be transformed to his greater purpose. We've all asked kids this question. Well, little Jimmy, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know the joke about that, don't you? People ask that question because they're trying to figure out what they want to do with their own lives. Maybe the kids will come up with a good idea. I don't know. But we ask that question a lot, don't we? We ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a firefighter. I want to be an army man. I want to be a ballerina. That's what my daughter's telling me right now. And a police officer. Put those together. A dancing cop. I don't know. But I think that's a question we all want answered, don't we? What are we going to be when we grow up? Grow up in the Lord. God's desire is for us all to be, have answered the call to follow Jesus, to be transformed into the likeness of his son. And his plan has always been for you and me to find his purpose, his pathway, and his direction so that we can fulfill the role God has for us in the kingdom of God. I want you to understand that you have a place of service in God's kingdom. You go, I don't know what it is. Keep looking. Because he has a place for you. And I guarantee you, he doesn't expect you to do everything. You know why? There's only one of you. You can't do it all. But what you get to do is what he calls you to do, and you do that to the very best and let others take care of the rest. And working together, we accomplish great things. He wants to work and live through you to an abundant life, one that is possible with God. Not on our own. So as we surrender to the invitation to follow God, he puts us on what? A new trajectory. We say, where are we going? We're going where he wants us to be. He begins to change us. He begins to transform us. And we become the likeness of his son. Our actions begin to change. Our desires begin to change. Our thoughts begin to change. Our words begin to change. The way we spend money begins to change. The way we spend our time begins to change. Everything is transformed in Christ because of his work in us. And his presence in us leads us to aim higher in life. Because if we don't shoot for anything, you'll get it every time. So what do we do with this? Three thoughts. I'll put it on the outline this morning if you're using the bulletin. If you're not, just listen. Three steps. Three steps. The first one I want to suggest to you is this. You've got to shift your focus. In Christ, we have to shift your life focus. Colossians 3.23 says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whether that's working at your job, taking care of your children, your grandkids, whether it's uh, taking care of your home, whether it's handling your finances, managing your time, whatever you do, we do it how? To the Lord. You go, well, God doesn't care about all this stuff. I guarantee you God cares about every detail of your life. 
And instead of living for work or instead of living for family or living for your country or even living for yourself, choose to live with a focus on God. It says, God, I want my life to be centered on you. In my personal life, my professional life, my public life, my private life. Can you imagine what our lives would look like if we just started living every moment for the Lord? And how it would be changed. Second, regularly take faith steps. I'm convinced that often as we age in our faith and in life, we have a tendency to stop taking steps of faith. We start figuring out how to do certain things. We go, I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do this. And somewhere along the way, God gets pushed out of the whole process because I can do it. When was the last time you did something that you knew you couldn't do that God had to do? What was the last faith step you took? Sometimes I read the Bible and I think, oh, it's so much easier to walk by faith in the Bible. They all got it figured out. Can I tell you something? They didn't have it all figured out. They struggled too. They seem to move in ways that God was moving in more than he does. But the people in the Bible struggle the same kind of, the same kind of stuff we do. They struggle with wanting to control their environment. They struggle with wanting to know all the details. They could struggle with wanting to be in control of this. They struggle with selfishness. They struggle with what was best. And Paul encouraged the church at Corinth to do this. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In our age of reason and rational thought, and even in our postmodern world now, we want to do what we want to do. We want to do what we feel we can do. We want to do what we can control and what we can handle. And what we can. I don't know about you, I think God is much more concerned about us taking steps of faith on a regular basis. He says, God, I want to trust you. And then third, let God's love lead. I suspect this is another area where we're going to have to adjust as we're going to aim high. And obviously, we're talking about the kind of love that we receive as we know Jesus, a love where we are willing to do whatever it takes to make relationships right, where we're willing to do whatever it takes to see God's work done, that we're willing to align our lives with God's purpose, even if it's not comfortable, easy, or safe. I think about John as he wrote to the churches over in Asia Minor, he said, this is the kind of love we have. He said this, by this we know love. That he, that Jesus laid down his life for us. We get that part of it, don't we? We go, man, Jesus gave his life for me. That's cool. That's amazing. I'm so glad God sent his son to die for Aren't you? Let me, are y'all glad God sent his son to die for you? I mean, glad maybe is not the right word. Are you grateful? He died for me. He gave me forgiveness of sin, made possible through that process. We love the first part of that sentence. The second part of it we struggle with. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Uh, yeah, I'll do the first part, but not the second. I don't know, let that stuff get in my way to do what I want to do. Listen, Jesus is our perfect example of love. And by living as he, by loving he did, we have a trajectory ahead that's toward him. Here's the question I close with. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to live a life filled with his love? Are you willing to set high goals? Because if you don't set any goals, you're going to hit it every time. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, what's the next step? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to trust Christ. How do you do that? Real simple. You trust Jesus by saying, God, forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. 
God will guide you through the rest of the steps after that. You go, it's that simple? Yeah, it's that simple. For many, it's other steps we need to take. We need to say, God, I'm tired of being in charge. I want you to lead. God, I'm tired of settling for what I can get. I want to aim high for what you want. Maybe that's the commitment we need to make this new year. I don't like resolutions, by the way. Most of them have already broken them today anyway. It's the second, so we've already messed it up. So let's forget the resolutions. Just say, I'm going to make a commitment today to be more like you and to follow you. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together this early in the year and worship you, to think about what it means to have a heart that's passionate for you, a heart that's committed to you, a heart that's centered on you. And Father, I pray that as we enter into this new year, you would show us what we need to do to align our lives with you. Father, that may mean a commitment to read Scripture, on a regular basis. It may mean that we have to say, God, I want to spend time in your word. I want to spend time with you in prayer. I want to be more faithful in gathering with God's people. I want to be more faithful in all these other areas of life because I want you to guide in all of them. I pray, God, that as we spend just a few minutes responding, that you would allow us to do as you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.